1: Is the next reel, everybody? I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey! And we spoil movies! Tonight in the show, we're wrapping up our Betty Davis series with Robert Aldrich's weird a thon, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at TheNextReel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you were ever curious if the murderous Betty Davis ever applied her talents to birds or small animals in addition to humans, then you're in the right place for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge.
0: And with that, let's check in with Games Master Stephen Smart, who we currently have trussed up and gagged in the bedroom upstairs just so we could find out who won this week. Hey guys, this week's movie was The Cowboys from 1972, directed by Mark Rydell and starring John Wayne, Roscoe Lee Brown and Bruce Dern. Congrats to at brendo 61 who guessed it on Image 2. You're entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday, So thanks, guys, and see you later.
1: And we got a blot spot, this time following up on uh, All About Eve from a great friend of the show, Ben Lott. This
0: is not the first time I have seen a story about a young ingenue who makes an experienced actress feel threatened. But the plot of All About Eve was crafted so perfectly, and the performances were so spot on, that I was actually surprised by Eve's turn halfway through the film. From that point on, you expect the film to take a dark turn, but they continued to surprise me. And I'll agree with Andy that the final scene might be one of the greatest finales in film history. Your rank 54, my rank 29.
1: That is awesome. That is awesome. I, I'm not saying it, it. 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 might be the greatest finale in film history. I'm not like the oddball. And it's. It's great. I'm just saying, you guys are using awfully heady words for how great it may be. Well, you know, there's a lot of films out there, but there has to be one that
0: has the greatest final scene, right?
1: <laughs> I guess that's true.
0: Well, it's like Highlander, man. Come on. <laughs>
1: be only one greatest finale in film <laughs> andy there could also be only one trailer
0: so my trailer pete you know i am quite excited about this uh new movie jackie uh with uh, natalie portman um it's I I find all of the the history about JFK very fascinating. Um, there are so many interesting stories about um, about him as a president and uh, him, especially his assassination, and then of course the conspiracy theories and all of that sort of stuff. But I really kind of knew nothing about uh, about First Lady Jackie Kennedy and really kind of everything that she went through after the assassination. Um, so this really kind of, uh, I, I knew she was kind of like a fashion icon and just stuff like that, but I didn't really know much about her. And so I, I saw this trailer and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a really interesting glimpse into that life. And kind of everything that was going on with her and how she had to portray herself um, in order to kind of help the nation get through it. And just all of this sort of stuff and how that affects her personally and her children and all that sort of stuff. I I, just, I don't know. I just found it really fascinating. And so um, especially considering that, hey, we're talking about Betty Davis, you know, one of the, the greatest actresses, I was like, it'd be great to find a trailer that has, uh, you know, a... A modern, great actress in a performance here. And from what I've been hearing about what Natalie Portman does here and from seeing the trailer, it certainly sounds like she uh, might be fitting the bill as far as that goes. But, uh, you know, Pablo Lorraine is directing this. Um, We're actually uh, we might be talking about him maybe a bit next year. So that kind of excites me. Um, and Noah Oppenheim wrote this script. It's, um, it's going to be, I don't know, I, I'm really excited about what they're doing here. Uh, Natalie Portman, John Hurt, Peter Sarsgaard, Billy Crudup, Greta Gerwig, uh, John Carroll Lynch is in it, Max Casella.
1: It's got a great cast. And uh, I'm excited about it. What did you think? I was really taken by it, as as I think I am also with Jackie herself. I think she's a fascinating character and I or a person, and I don't feel like I know that much about her. But I, I just it's one of those sort of media charisma events. Whenever I see her talking, and so uh, I'm really excited to see how they treat this film. I was uh, really smitten when I saw who was directing it, and then I, you know, I God Noah Oppenheimer. What I know of Noah Oppenheim is, you know, he comes more from the world of production, uh, you know, production yeah. news. He produced Hardball for a long time and Today Show for a long time, long time, uh, 643 episodes. So he's got a couple, two, three years there. Um, and so, you know, he's a he's news guy, documentary guy, but he wrote Allegiant and The Maze Runner. And right, yeah, I know. I, I wasn't excited about either of those movies like they n- neither one of them really, really met the what I was looking for. I know I'm not the core audience target audience for those. So I, I was disappointed in those films. And so that that's the only thing that gives me pause about Jackie. I And I do agree with you there. I'm just hoping that
0: the rest of the team is going to do something great with it. And it sounds like they are. I mean, it, this has been playing at festivals for uh, for quite a while now, starting uh, at the Venice Film Festival back in September. And uh, I think it just finished its festival run. It's going to be opening December 2nd. So buzzes out there. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. So we'll see, I guess.
1: Well, my trailer, Andy... I can't believe we haven't talked about it, but trailer two hit this week with Kong Skull Island. Uh, this is filmed, uh, directed by Jordan Vogt Roberts, uh, written by Dan Gilroy, uh, and stars Brie Larson, Tom Hiddleston, uh, uh, Toby Kebbell, Sam Jackson, John Goodman, Corey Hawkins, uh, John C. Riley, John C. Riley's beard. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a, it, it's a, it looks like a giant fantastic big uh you know monster movie cg motion capture awesome monster movie and the trailer andy is terrible it's terrible it fails everything a trailer is supposed to do right and you know we used to we used to pick trailers and i think you know to an extent we still do but we may have have wandered off the path the trailers that we would pick were the trailers that we wanted to celebrate because they were they delivered what a trailer was supposed to do. They were supposed to excite you about a film. They were supposed to get supposed to get you motivated to go see the film, to tease you about the film, uh, to to give you something to look forward to, uh, and to be a particular celebration of the art of the trailer in itself. Right? Not not just a commercial, but but there is a certain craft to to creating a trailer, and and we wanted to have those kinds of things that we're, we're showcasing. This trailer is the worst on all of those points. This movie may be awesome. This may be an explosion of light and color and size and sound and fantasticness, but they gave all of it to us in the trailer. I don't even care about the movie anymore. I know what Kong looks like. I know who the, 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 all the, the various, that there are all sorts of other giant monsters on the island. I've seen most of them. The big spider, that's scary. I've seen all the things that come up from the deep. Now, of course, I'm sure you're going to tell me, Pete, I'm sure that they've saved something uh, for the film. And and I'm going to say, Andy, you're right. We're going to have this conversation. I'm sure there's something out there. But they've given me so much in the damn trailer that I don't care. I don't care. And it makes me really frustrated at the movie, at the decisions that uh, Jordan Vaught-Roberts and team uh, went through for this stupid trailer to give so much away of the visuals uh, that that it absolutely sucked my excitement right out of seeing the film. There you go. That's it. That's what I. Have wow, Mister Poopy Dance. I pooped all over it. I did. I was in the theater. We went to see Fantastic Beast this weekend. Saw it on the big screen, and there's Kong giving it all away. You know,
0: I I think you're wrong. I actually really enjoyed the trailer. This is it's a monster movie. This is going to be it's it's I mean, this is a film about, you know, all of the monsters on Skull Island. And it's just like they're going to show us the monsters because this is just a B monster movie and they're just giving it to us. And I actually kind of enjoyed what they did with the trailer because of that. They weren't afraid to hold back because, hey, we're going to have wall to wall monsters throughout this movie. So just settle in and enjoy the ride.
1: So I had a great time.
0: And you were a cheap date. I I can be. Uh, yes, I can be.
1: <laughs> well, you will uh, you can be uh, a fully spoiled March 10th, 2017. Actually, you're Excellent. already fully spoiled. You don't even need to do anything else. You you know what it's about. So on you can confirm it on March 10th, 2017. And I will. <laughs> Andy, I wonder if you can guess who I am. I wonder if you can guess who I am. I'm Baby Jane Hudson.
0: Who the hell was Baby Jane Hudson?
1: I've written a letter to
0: Daddy saying I love you.
1: My sister doesn't ever go out. She's um, not fit to receive visitors. Jane, I want to talk
0: to I'm afraid I have bad news. We'll probably have to sell the house.
1: You aren't ever gonna sell this house. And you aren't ever gonna leave it. She's sick and she's not getting any better. You mean Jane?
0: I think she seems much better
1: lately.
0: I was cleaning the cage got up.
1: Oh! you wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if i weren't still in this chair but you are blanche you are in that chair <laughs> jane please
0: don't do this to me jane jane please
1: whatever happened to baby jane andy People all over the world are asking themselves what happened to her. <laughs> Director Robert Aldrich, screenwriter Lucas Heller, adapted by the, from the novel by Henry Farrell, uh, stars Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Victor Buono from 1962. This is the last film in our series in which Andy attempts to uh, convince Pete that Betty Davis is deserving of her title of screen icon and Grand Dame of cinema. Uh, Andy, watching this film this time, how did it hit you? Uh, You know,
0: I had such a great time watching this film. It's so twisted and dark. And, uh, you know, I, I think my memory of it was that it was a little more campy, because I think it has such a camp status. It's kind of got this, this queer icon status and all of that. And I think that's kind of how I had locked it in my head. But watching it again, I was just like, man, this is just a really frightening movie. It is really dark. It is twisted. And it is really watching these uh, these sisters uh, just, you know... Th- going at each other's throats well really one going at the other's throat um because she's got like she's mentally unstable Uh, there's just the psychological abuse it was really just a dark disturbing story it made for a really tense and intense horror film i had an absolute great time watching it
1: andy yes i agree (laughs) <laughs> hey, <laughs> you have me worried there. <sighs> yeah, no. I, I this uh, I I told you last week. I've seen this movie before. It's been some time, but I I remember really liking it. I I, I had no connection to Aldrich uh, at the time and. So I always had just remembered this as just Hitchcock, you know, and I think it lives up to the standard uh, of of a Hitchcock kind of thriller, a cerebral thriller uh, that, that turns into something even more maniacal. Um, I, I really love that uh, the movie poster, if you look at the original movie poster, it, it has a warning on the poster that is something I hadn't seen before. Uh, I'd like to read it now, if you don't mind. Go this for is it. The, this is the fine print. Things you should know about this motion picture before buying a ticket. One, if you're longsta- you are long-standing fans of Miss Davis and Miss Crawford, we warn you this is quite unlike anything they've ever done. Two, you are urged to see it from the beginning. Three, be prepared for the macabre and the terrifying. Four, we ask you to pledge to keep the shocking climax a secret. Five, when the tension begins to build, try to remember, it's just a movie. <laughs> I think that is... Awesome. And pulling a little bit from
0: uh, Hitchcock and Psycho's marketing.
1: Exactly. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And so that's kind of why I've always had this in my, uh, in that sort of Hitchcock gestalt. I think that uh, it is fantastic to watch this film first of all knowing what happened to both of these actresses children and that they both went on uh to to write these stories uh, and tell the stories of being raised by these women um i my memory of joan crawford is from her being played by faye dunaway in mommy dearest and uh that you know Betty Davis's daughter would go on to write my mother's keeper you know the lesson here is don't let your kids write books my god um this was uh this was the story of these uh, of these women that that and the torment that they put one another through over the years um that that really I, I couldn't look away i called this a in my mind i call it a train wreck movie and and i think that that is maybe more what train wreck is is, is means to me like we we say train wreck now it's like oh it was a disaster it was horrible for me a, a train wreck is really something that that has so much terror and horror and and horrific images that you can't look away right it it doesn't mean it was bad it means i can't look away and that's how i felt in this movie i it, it, even as sort of campy as it may have appeared some of the cuts that that kind of bend from the uh you know the more thriller to camp uh, I even I couldn't look away even even then I thought it was fantastic, a great example of of you know what these women can do
0: well and it's a really interesting thing that Aldrich ended up doing by casting uh, Davis and Crawford I mean two actresses who really had kind of been. Um, not necessarily at each other's throats um, from uh, the beginning, but they certainly um, didn't have that many kind words about each other. And it was just kind of this thing. They were just kind of always Hollywood rivals. They had always uh, kind of seemed that way. And and uh, to cast the two of them together in this film it seemed almost as much uh, stunt casting as just a, a, a brilliant move to get two great actresses to play these two roles and i think that uh, there's a certain level of that by by letting these two um who really um you know for all intents and purposes, were kind of arch rivals outside of uh, outside of the screen. Um, here, they got to be inside the screen as arch rivals, and it ended up working so well. But it's uh, it's it's such an interesting thing because I mean, people were worried that uh, Aldrich was kind of making a mistake by casting these old actresses. I mean, this was kind of the end of the, the studio era had ended, and and really people didn't have long careers especially actresses sad to say that went on so long i mean usually they would kind of get old and nobody would hire them anymore and they would kind of disappear these two kind of proved over and over again that careers didn't have to end as long as there were interesting roles out there they could they could get them and they could draw an audience and uh, by casting these two uh, older women, I mean, we talked about this with with Davis in uh, All About Eve, it kind of revitalized her career. With this movie, it did kind of again, you know, 12 years later, the All About Eve stage of her career had kind of ended. And this kind of created this whole new era for her that she kind of rode out until the end. And same thing with Crawford, who was uh, went on to be in a whole bunch of kind of these low-end B movies all the way until I think Trog was her last film. And, uh, you know, it's great that, that this was just kind of another opportunity to show people that, uh, somebody's career doesn't have to end just because they're older, just give them, you know, different things to play. I I, had so much fun watching these two and just thinking about everything in their lives and how they all connected and how it all came, came off on screen here.
1: It is. Uh, it's really fun to think about. Although, and you know, I'm, I'm interested in how the the press treated these women because you know my understanding was even before this film they hadn't actually exchanged many words with each other. They didn't like each other. They were rivals in terms of being competitors, but but they they hadn't uh, they they hadn't didn't know each other really for for lack of a better word and and I think their animosity grew from there. Uh, so I'm really interested in the effect of the media on their relationship and and how you know how much of an impact did it have on on uh, you know how well they were able to communicate with one another based on you know the the meter of how of what the media was was talking about in terms of them I, I think they you know they founded they sort of this film defines the psychobiddy movie and we've talked about psychobiddy movie in passing not knowing many of them and yet here we are this is the film that <laughs> introduced it to the world I love Love that uh, that that we we get to come back to this. Um, they and and it was Davis herself that said this is a this was truly a break in women's films uh, that it was a film that that centers on these two women characters that don't involve the men if you don't count you know don't involve a romantic relationship uh, you know not counting you know the relationship with the father briefly um, and and that these two go for broke performances uh, you know were really definitive uh, in. In in changing the perception of of uh, uh, certainly a genre.
0: So I guess this would pass the the, uh, the was it the Bechdel test?
1: Yeah, I think handily. Right. Yeah, easily. Yeah. So uh funny. The, the scripts by Lucas Heller, and uh, you know, it's based. We talked about the. It was based on the the novel, the 1960 novel by Henry Farrell. I it, did you peek through the novel at all? I have not.
0: Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't either.
1: I don't have a lot to say about Lucas Heller, but I just want to highlight these the the way he turns these um, these suspense bits because I think they they work really really well. Right there there were four elements that I that um, that really stuck out to me uh, the way they handled the the use of the phone and, and in particular the use of the phone uh, you know the mechanics of the phone and and it may be lost on viewers today. <laughs> If you're not of a certain age, how phones used to work. Uh, and, and probably if you're interested in this movie, uh, you know how phones used to work. But but they really played—he really plays the mechanics of the phone. And, and you know, what it means to leave the phone off the hook to other people who are trapped in a house trying to use the phone ends up being a, a particularly suspenseful uh, mechanic. Um, the, uh, you know, little things like the, the, the balled-up uh, paper with the please-save-me note— Uh, As uh, Blanche throws it out the window uh, and it lands so perfectly on the driveway, just about ready for the next door neighbor to pick it up right as uh, as Betty Davis's uh, character comes back in the car and they stand there over it. Uh, cutting perfectly back from these wide medium shots uh, to this really high angle, looking down at the two women talking over the ball of paper on the driveway, very suspenseful mechanic uh, the The first rescue you know as the as the maid uh, the the housekeeper comes back uh, and goes upstairs is you 're not quite sure what what 's going to happen with her what 's going to happen with that hammer uh, and uh, and and we find out what happens with the hammer. all of these elements are great, and of course. I know you're such a fan of the way the meals are hand- handled.
0: It's, uh, it's fantastic the way that we are, handle kind of, you know, f- the reveal of the parakeet um, and then the reveal that the next tray is nothing but food, but then building that to the next reveal that it's rats. And it's just the way that that works so well in the script, just constantly playing with our minds as Jane is playing with Blanche's mind. It just worked so perfectly in the script.
1: It really does. And, and you know, I, I'm glad we added this to the note. I'm glad you added this to the note. Anytime Jane's out, this race against time, that's another one where they play with repetition, right? He so successfully tricks us that every time Jane leaves, and it's not just once, every time she leaves the house, it's a race against time. And it becomes uh, successively more sort of intimidating and perilous, even though we know the feeling, like we've already been there, it's a familiar feeling, and yet he's able to play us with that feeling time and time again.
0: Absolutely, yeah, it, it works so effectively. Um, I, I think the script has a lot of that in that, but obviously, you know, Robert Aldrich and his editor um, built a lot of that in as well. It just it's it's. I mean, they really put this together like it is a horror thriller. And uh, from, from Heller's script through the way that Aldrich directed it and his editor cut it, I mean, it just all um, is taut, tense, and uh, perfect.
1: Heller went on, uh, or, or Heller had, I should say, did he go on? Yeah, I think he went on after this to, to do a couple of episodes of Hitchcock Hour uh, and then Flight of the Phoenix and Dirty Dozen in addition to uh, about two dozen other uh, titles that he, he penned. Um, but really, uh, this was, is this was some great suspense stuff uh so robert aldrich uh direction
0: i think he's a he's a a solid director i mean i i think this film gets so lost in the two stars as far as what they're doing here and bringing to the table that i think it's easy to kind of um lose touch with uh the director as far as what he's actually doing here and i know aldrich uh was more of a uh kind of an auteur uh liberal humanistic Sort of filmmaker um, with some of his other films. Um, interestingly, he worked with Lucas Heller uh, on a number of them, but um, but this one isn't so much. I mean, this one really kind of goes back to I think more of his uh, his noir days and and the stuff that he was doing with Kiss Me Deadly and the Big Knife that really kind of had a a little bit more of that darker turn. And I think that he uh, very adeptly shows that he knows how to handle this type of story. I mean, he does it really well. It's uh, it's just very successful and it's it's really tense. Um, uh, you know, I, I think he's a director that um, you don't really hear people talking about him much as a director, but he certainly has directed a ton of stuff that people know, um, you know, aside from like this and uh, I mean, you'd already uh, kind of talked about um, The Dirty Dozen, Flight of the Phoenix, but he did Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. He did... Um, uh, the longest yard was a, kind of a big one later in his life. Uh, so, I mean, he's, he's a guy who's done a lot of,
1: a lot of big stuff and I think he does a great job here. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Also based on the book, right? By the same author originally titled whatever happened to cousin Charlotte.
0: And, uh, I think there was a, what was the other one that he did? Whatever happened to aunt Alice? Yeah. Yes. Oh, which I don't, yeah. I don't know if it's also from the, uh, the same author, but, uh. Uh yeah, yeah, it was all, you know, he kind of became somebody who's doing some of these uh, psycho biddy films.
1: Wonder wondering what happened to all of these family members. <laughs> where where did they Oh, uh, anyway, uh, but you know, what's interesting about Aldrich is that he comes back and is able to do these movies like, you know, The Longest Yard with, with Burt Reynolds, which, uh, you know, is a, a notably different style and tone. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's an adept and, and, um, sort of versatile filmmaking.
0: Well, I think, um, I, I pulled this quote that a critic said, uh, film critic John Patterson just a few years ago said he was a punchy caustic macho and pessimistic director who depicted corruption and evil unflinchingly and pushed limits on violence throughout his career his aggressive and pugnacious filmmaking style often crass and crude but never less than utterly vital and alive warrants and will richly reward your immediate attention i I think that says a lot about you know what he does as a director and really what he's bringing to the table here i mean there's definitely some violence in this film that i i think for 1962 it's it's you know pretty uh, intense i mean it warranted an x certificate in the uk when it was released so
1: that's well and that's an interesting note that right that it it opens with the uk and i think it was so right around 2004 that the re-release opened as 12a uh in the uk a oh, mighty the times they change. <laughs> Why don't you uh, kick us off with the first shot, last shot? The first shot, we start
0: uh, with the black screen and uh, 1917 as a super. And then uh, over the black, we hear a girl crying and a man's voice says, want to see it again, little girl? It shouldn't frighten you. Then we get to this wacky worm's eye view from inside a jack-in-the-box as it pops open, something I've never seen before when you're in the box looking up as the little clown pops out. Uh, Then you cut to this uh, shot of the -the jack-in-the-box and the little girl crying, and then you cut back to the -the jack-in-the-box, and now it's crying too.
1: Wasn't that the same angle in (laughs) 7? Anyway, last shot, uh we've got a high overhead of Jane dancing. Uh she's on the beach and she's surrounded by people watching her dance in in and uh, spin on the beach as uh two officers run over to check on Blanche who's passed out uh just uh just next to them. Uh it is uh wow. What a a strange uh, and wonderful pairing. Uh, the most visual tie in for me is obviously the circles i think that the scene from the inside the box is a sign uh, or is a is in the circle from the inside of the jack in the box yes and then ends yeah. uh, with the circle on the beach
0: absolutely yeah there's this kind of circles of madness theme uh that appeared a few times in the film and definitely with the inside of the jack in the box When you're looking up through the springs as the little clown pops out and then you've got the big crowd around Jane. And then, of course, there's this there's when Blanche is wheeling around madly in her wheelchair around her bedroom in circles and Mm -hmm. uh, all of these different circles. I mean, it really is just kind of this this madness that we're trapped in here. It's a it's fascinating uh, first and last shot, I think.
1: Well, and you know uh, what's out that many of the deep focus shots that uh, include the phone in the frame, right, uh, are also focused on the round. Uh, you know, the central theme of the frame is the round of the handset. You know, of the the earpiece. So it's it's everywhere. These circles. Yeah. Uh, I, I I hadn't caught as as many of those until until we started talking about it. Uh, it's fantastic, uh, and the the close of um uh, you know the the mania that comes from a jack in the box uh and the mania that we see as evidenced in in uh, jane dancing around the beach absolutely unaware of what's going on around her at the cost of all of her or at the price of all of her attention that she's getting Uh, fueling that mania is um, you know really central to to what the film is about this is another one of those films for me where if you just saw the beginning the craziness and you saw that last shot pull up I think you could you could get a sense of the heart of the film.
0: Yeah, I, I think the tears also at the beginning and uh, just the the devastation at the end as Blanche is kind of dying on the beach. That's another mm-hmm. interesting uh, tie there. It's just you know this this madness that leads to uh, heartbreak and devastation.
1: Um, uh, casting, we've got uh, uh, Jack Merton did the casting of this film.
0: Yeah, I don't know how much he had to play as far as with Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, but uh, the rest of the film certainly. Um, I think really it was Aldrich who brought on uh, Joan Crawford to this film and then my the, the way that it reads is that uh, he actually um, is talking to her about it and she says that Betty Davis would be interested in an interesting choice to play uh, to play Jane and because she had just recently seen uh, Davis on a show on Broadway I believe and so she went backstage and talked to her about it and Sounds like that's kind of how things went down, which is really interesting. That uh, considering the animosity they they may have had toward each other, that uh, that um, that they they ended up working together. But I think before Davis, they'd considered Ingrid Bergman, Susan Hayward, Rita Hayworth, Catherine Hepburn, Jennifer Jones, Ginger Rogers, and uh, and and even Joan Crawford. I mean, her part they'd uh, apparently considered Tallulah Bankhead, Claudette Colbert, Olivia De Havilland, and Marlena Dietrich. So. Um, a lot of interesting choices, but I think that the pair they ended up with really is what uh, kind of helps sell this film.
1: Well, it works perfectly. And, you know, we did. I, I think it's it's absolutely fair to say we don't know just how much animosity they really had before this film. But clearly, and you found some of these tidbits that I did not find that demonstrates that the animosity was absolutely there at the end of the film.
0: Uh, My understanding, I mean, you know, we'll talk about this with the financials a little bit. I mean, they both ended up, though, having profit participation in the film. And uh, so from what I read, they really, for the most part, behaved on set. They were both good for Aldrich. Uh, They all worked well together. Um, But certainly there were little signs. Um, You know, at the time, uh, Joan Crawford was married to the chairman of Pepsi, And I'm not sure if if Davis had a Coke machine installed on the set or if she filled the Pepsi machine with Coke. (laughs) But one or the other, it sounded like she was just, you know, Pushing Crawford's buttons, certainly. Davis says of Crawford that she she had all these different uh, three sizes of, of bosoms that she would wear. And uh, she, Davis said, in the famous scene in which she lay on the beach, Joan wore the largest ones. Let's face it, when a woman lies on her back, I don't care how well endowed she is, her bosoms do not stand straight up. And Blanche had supposedly wasted away for 20 years. The scene called for me to fall on top of her. I had the breath almost knocked out of me. It was like falling on two footballs.
1: Oh, Betty Davis pulls no punches. Oh, my. These two ladies (laughs) falling Uh. on football. Oh. Uh, the, the coke bit, uh, the coke bit slays me. The You know, I don't know how, how much of that other stuff to believe. But the thing that I do believe uh, absolutely categorically is that Betty Davis did her own makeup. And you can see some of that in the behind the scenes video that was produced at the time. It's a terrible behind the scenes by what you might expect by today's standards. But you do see Betty Davis actually putting on her own makeup. Uh, and And I'm not going to lie to you. It's funny. Well, she said, yeah, I
0: I think what she she said about the makeup, she said that she felt Jane never washed her face, that she just added another layer of makeup each day. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I think that comes through nicely.
1: (laughs) Oh, my dear. I think so,
0: too. Yeah, it's it's terrific. Uh, What I think is interesting is, I mean, they have such big personalities, these two women, and you see so much of them um, playing themselves in the parts, almost as if, um people were kind of expecting a little bit of that but also um you know giving us some really interesting characters and that's what i think is so interesting about this film is 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 there are shades of reality all through it yet there are uh, it, it is very fictional at the same time and i find that really interesting to look at as we watch these two women on screen together
1: yeah i i agree with that how do you think just in terms of of betty davis's performance um how do you how does this stack up for you uh coming from the last three films that we watched? well since I, I guess I'm
0: trying to convince you of Betty Davis's greatness um I, what I love about it is that she uh I think she actually even said something to the effect that um she never cared how she looked on screen as long as it worked for the part and i think that for the part of uh, baby jane hudson what she brings to the table here is so big and over the top and frightening um but so um so really authentic that uh, i never really feel that she's just Playing it big just uh, for playing it big's sake. I mean, I really feel like she's created this character and who really is just mentally unstable. And I mean, she had kind of a, been destroyed as a child. And I don't know if it was it was because of the way that, that her father raised her and treated her or if she was already kind of that way. It never really uh, tells you, but... It doesn't really matter because in the end, she's just this mentally unstable woman and she's just so unhinged. But you get that incredible turn at the end when uh, when Blanche uh, gives the big reveal about uh, the fact that she was driving and and her touching little line there. She's like, all this time we could have been friends and... And it's, it's haunting. It's just kind of devastating and sad. And it all comes through as so authentic. Um, I, I mean, I think Betty Davis, looking at all of the different films that we have watched um, in this particular series, I think that she's given such a different uh, range, but also wholly authentic for the character she's playing.
1: Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to hand that to you. In terms of her her performance here, as weird as this character is, as uncomfortable as their relationships are, I find her performance here specifically as an actress to be absolutely stunningly bold. And I think it's you know, back to her quote where this was a breakout film for women. This In particular, her part of this duo was a breakout film for actresses of a certain caliber and a certain age to do this sort of go for broke thing, to do something that that paved the way for Meryl Streep to do the crazy stuff she's done for, uh, you know, to to take on these roles that you know before then were much more difficult to to find a uh roles that weren't written that way but certainly w- to be portrayed with the sort of grit and psychosis that I think it was was hard to find and and that Betty Davis would take on this role and play it as boldly as she did is definitive and she's got to be celebrated for that that that's powerful stuff
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I don't think that we can uh, give Joan Crawford uh, any sort of a short shrift by uh, by not mentioning her performance. Hers is just so much more, um, uh, I mean, it's just diminutive because of the the character that she's playing. And she certainly is is the more passive character. And I think she brings so much of that to the table here. In in a really powerful way. I mean, she's just broken and and psychologically just kind of crushed throughout the film. I really think that uh, I mean, as big and bold as Betty Davis is, I think Joan Crawford is bringing a lot to the table as well.
1: Victor Buono plays Edwin Flag, uh, the the uh, the the guy, the guy who shows up. <laughs> That's pretty much what he's left The accompanist, <laughs> right. The accompanist, right. He's the, as you can tell, I'm British. <laughs> nice for you. <laughs>
0: um, now, I, you know, he's an interesting actor. I, I guess Peter Lawford uh, was originally cast, but he ended up withdrawing two days after being cast because he was actually concerned his character might reflect badly on his brother-in-law, who happened to be uh, JFK. Uh, interesting tie-in to the trailer earlier. Um, so that's kind of funny, but we ended up with Victor Buono who, uh, you know, he's a really kind of an interesting little character actor that I, I don't think I had seen in much other than maybe, you know, some episodes of Batman or something, but, uh, I really enjoy him here.
1: Well, he was, he did, uh, beneath the planet of the apes, right? Yeah. He's in he was that one fat too, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I thought he was fantastic, and and uh, you know, funny, and uh, even though his part was was fairly short, his his journey from like sophisticated British accompanist to uh, kind of psycho at the end, you know, as he as he discovers what's going on and realizes that he's you know he's sort of being played by this crazy woman. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. It was he fits right in and is perfect, and and uh, um, you know was able to pull it together even on, on short notice in a way that I made him really interesting and yeah, what a weird absolutely. relationship with his mother
0: yeah right? it's, it's, it's a, another pair of interesting relationships in this film yeah. something that they certainly were exploring
1: yeah I don't think I don't think, uh, I don't think uh, anybody was a real fan of family. In this film, you know, in, in terms of what this symbolizes, I don't know if it's if it's Heller, uh, you know, uh, characterizing Pharrell's w- uh, work in this, or Pharrell channeling, you know, using the book as therapy. But but somebody's got real problems with family in this film.
0: Yeah, I think uh, other than the neighbors and Elvira, <laughs> <I> think- yeah. <laughs> you know the the there's little points of light i guess but
1: uh Uh, we you you mentioned elvira uh norman plays elvira stitt uh, we like her. She she plays that the role of the housekeeper, um, the the kind of hired support personnel. Uh, I- interesting to see her after we after last week's film. Um, you know, talking about all about Arive and and that sort of central character. Uh, you know, the kind of wise character is is the hired help, the person who seems to know it all. Is the first is the you know the person who is who is you know hired on. And paid to be supportive.
0: You absolutely could have had
1: Thelma Ritter in this, and it would have worked yeah. just fine. <laughs> absolutely would have, right? It absolutely would have. Playing yeah. an archetype at this point. Yeah, right. Uh, so, who else is on your list?
0: Uh, just pointing out that uh, Wesley Addy, he's in it briefly as uh, one of the studio heads, or not a studio head, but one of the producers um, in the 1935 segment. Um, and he was the butler from Seconds, so uh, we've seen his face before um and uh, of course B.D. Merrill who plays the daughter living next door was Betty Davis's real life uh, adopted daughter and um yeah like you already mentioned she went on to write
1: a memoir about her own mother all the great parties they went to and circuses birthdays uh getting it made We've talked about the strategy behind putting these women together. Um what was the what was it like for Aldrich to get this uh, get this movie going? To get on this?
0: Surprisingly difficult.
1: Um Aldrich was
0: kind of an independent filmmaker and uh but he, and you know, considering that he had these two women, he had a really hard time getting money to get it made. No studio would sign for it. Um, they said plenty of terrible things about uh, these two two old actresses that uh, nobody believed really could carry a film anymore
1: and wasn't it wasn't it Crawford wasn't joan Crawford on the she was another one who was marked as box office poison you know i
0: back in the uh in the late 30s early 40s yeah yeah, I can't remember, but yeah, very possible, very possible. I
1: think that's that's one of the things in that terrible uh, uh, behind the scenes that they actually pointed out was that she was also on that list. So these women were, you know, they were shunned from the box office for so long throughout their
0: careers. Yeah, it's just it's just terrible things to to say about people, but they were still having issues getting stuff made, and um, nobody would fund it. So he ended up just kind of having to produce it independently. And he got the two actresses to sign on, really for back-end profit participation, and that's how he was able to get both of them on. Got it made independently, and luckily, the press started getting excited about the casting. New York Times had a headline that said, TNT potential explosion seen in pairing of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. And... The way that it sounds is that because of that, they finally got distribution through Seven Artists, Warner Brothers, and uh, that's really the reason that it ended up getting distributed. But uh, really, I mean, it's only because he could get Davis and Crawford to sign on for profit participation and just take uh, very little money at the start that he could actually get this thing off the ground. That's how things were. It just nobody believed that this would be a movie that made any money.
1: Uh, Ernest Heller is the, was the man behind the camera on this film. And I have to tell you this, it's, it's one of the reasons it was so easy to connect with this film for me is because it reminded me so much of, of the thing that I liked so much about the little foxes, uh, is just the way they worked the camera. Uh, and even though that film was kind of a mixed bag, uh, for me, I think for both of us, this This film really celebrates just how well you can move a camera to tell the story. And shooting it in black and white, too. I think that
0: Haller really uh, played everything right as far as the way that he worked the camera to create this just really claustrophobic, dark tight atmosphere and uh, did a really good job i guess originally um, they were talking about filming in color but uh, davis really was against it saying that it would make a sad story look pretty Um, and i mean i completely agree this is just born to be a black and white film it just works so well with those kind of noirish hints that aldrich
1: brought to the table we talked about the deep focus and the little foxes. I think they celebrated here too. I wasn't sure some of them. I, I they, they wouldn't, it wouldn't have been a, a, any sort of split diopter thing, right? I mean, some of these wide shots, they were just deep focus.
0: Yeah, right. I didn't see anything that looked that looked split. Diopter.
1: Nothing that, yeah, nothing that looked particularly, you know, broken like that. Uh, but really used it so well. Such wonderful low angles. Um, they also slapped Betty Davis on in the car and let her drive around Hollywood.
0: And it looks so much better than the crappy process shots from all buddy, which looks <laughs> that's right, which were the worst. All oh, those were so bad. But yeah, Betty Davis, uh, she said uh, in 1987 uh, that she still uh, would smile when uh, she was playing Jane driving down uh, Beverly Boulevard in an old Hudson, and just the expressions on people's faces and other cars when they uh, uh, saw her driving. She said lots of mouths dropped. Which uh, I think that's just funny. Oh yeah. So, uh, but you know, I I, I think that um, what they do here is just uh, find a way to really put this world in the right uh, in the right tones and, and everything. You mentioned little foxes. Um, I was thinking mirrors and how effective they were in that film and how it worked so well in this film too. Uh, just the placement True. of mirrors and and just those shots of of Jane looking at herself in the mirror and uh, I don't know, just a lot of great uh, ways to work the oh. camera here.
1: Really, reminiscent again of All About Eve and the and yeah. the use of mirrors, right? I right, mean, right. Yeah. Ab- absolutely terrific uh, use of mirrors. Uh, Ernest Haller, uh, in addition, he he had shot with Davis and Crawford before. He'd been o- nominated for Oscar, uh, for an Oscar seven times in his career. He'd won for a film we've talked about before, uh, Gone with the Wind. Ah, uh, that little film. Yes, there was. An, that's another film that we. <laughs> it's a it's a good looking film. <laughs> didn't, that, that one didn't hold up as well. Uh, not as I, well, oh, not as well. Of, of note, he, also, uh, he was also behind the camera for episode two. The last thing he did, it looks like, was episode two of Star Trek, the original series, where no man has gone before. That's awesome. What do you think, of, do you think about that?
0: I think that's great. Uh, I think that actually he came out of semi retirement to do that. Um, I think that d- the director had recommended him at the last minute after attempts to locate a cameraman had proved problematic. So um, that's exciting
1: that he ended up coming on to do that. Roddenberry asked you to come out of retirement. You come out of retirement. They <laughs> <laughs> don't call him Don Roddenberry for nothing. That's right, <laughs> the, the Don. <laughs> You want to talk a little bit about uh, we we mentioned uh, Betty Davis did her own makeup. Uh, uh do you want to talk a little bit more about that?
0: Uh only other one other thing other than the fact that her her daughter when she saw her in the full Jane makeup said, "Oh mother, this time you've gone too far." <laughs> which <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I think works in this particular context. But I did think there was one other thing that I dug up that I thought was really interesting, that Betty Davis's wig apparently had been worn by Crawford in a different film. But neither of them had recognized it because apparently it had been regroomed, groomed And uh, so it's something that somebody discovered after the fact. I think that's just such a strange little thing. <laughs> That's Another connection bizarre. between these two women. Yes, I know.
1: <laughs> um you know, and, and in the spirit of uh things that you can find on the your Hollywood map to the stars, uh we, we should say that you can find the uh the house where this was filmed, where the exteriors of this of of the film uh, was done it's at uh, 172 south mccadden place in la you can go there or you can just go there on google maps and see it because it's there it's right there and put it in 3d view and you don't actually have to bar- bother the nice people uh, <laughs> the next door neighbors have a pool oh no they've got a pool they too. do too yeah. yep. yep yep they've got a pool too yeah everybody's got yes. a pool
0: Look everybody at all the has pools. a pool i know they're all over the place it looks like the house next door actually has its own tennis court too Boy,
1: really? And, yeah.
0: And I actually that. learned that the house next door, that's where Judy Garland was living when she was making The Wizard of Oz.
1: No kidding.
0: No kidding. Huh, LA. Man. <laughs> it's a small world after all. Surprise
1: Pete. around every corner. <laughs> oh, indeed. Uh e- editing uh editing credit. So much of the, the noir thriller editing vibe goes to Michael Luciano. Uh, which was just really, really successful editing work for most of the film.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, well, I'm curious what what didn't work for you. But for me, I loved it, all the horror tropes that he had, the dramatic shot of the phone off the hook with the musical sting cut in there, the, just all the horror thriller cutting, just how tight it was and how tense it, the, they built uh, all of this stuff. I thought he did a fantastic job with the cutting of the film
1: the the clips the old movie clips uh that were cut into the film when looking at their old work Jane's were um, from uh, both of Betty Davis's films Parachute Jumper and Ex-Lady in 1933 and Blanche's uh would have been from Crawford's film Sadie McKee in 1934 have you seen either of those I haven't I haven't seen any of them um and uh, I found
0: it very interesting that they used those films and were like good with the fact that for Davis's films, these guys were pretty much mocking everything about her performance in the films. And Crawford was like <laughs> was like bagging on the director and the way he cut everything. I was like, this is really interesting meta story about these actresses and almost how they perceive some of their older projects. I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Right. And it, it actually made me go back and think how, what do you think the selection process was like? Like, okay, Betty, what would you be willing to have lampooned? Right. exactly. Of your past work. I wonder how much thought was put into that. I think that's interesting.
0: Well, something else with the editing that I thought was interesting, um, just looking at the the past and everything, I really found it very effective how they cut the sequence when uh, when basically uh, one of the women crashes into the other of the women. And the way that it's all cut, it's really – you get a sense as you're watching it, oh, they're cutting it this way where we're not seeing any faces because, well, let's see, this takes place in 1935 and and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are much too old and we've already seen them on the screen. They can't cast different actresses to play them. So they're just cutting where you could kind of get a sense of who, who they might be. And it really sets it up interestingly where you really assume that Jane – crashes into Blanche. I thought that was just an incredible way to set that whole premise up, yet put a twist on it that the fact is that's not actually what happened. But the reason that we assume that they cut that way and they shot it that way was because that
1: the actresses couldn't play those parts. I I went along with it the whole time. Yeah, I did
0: too. But I was just like, I went on, along with it because I'm like, well, they can't show us the actresses. So we're just, we just know that, oh, it's Jane crashing into Blanche. yeah. And then I love that we get that reveal later, that it's, it, yeah. it just it made that reveal work so well. Totally, totally it did.
1: Music by Frank Duvall. Uh, I wasn't crazy about this.
0: I, I, I love, though, that there is this period. And, you know, I don't know if anyone's doing it anymore, but how he's just credited as Duvall. he's more like a
1: like some sort of a fashion designer
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's like Adrian designing all the clothes for the women (laughs) yeah Adrian exactly
1: Adrian Duvall Chardet Cher Cher. (laughs) Sonny
0: I I actually liked um, the music for this film. I love that there's kind of that interesting Calliope theme that we get kind of about around uh, Jane's lunacy. Um, and then you've got that crazy, I sent a letter to daddy song, which is just so weird and disturbing in its own way. But how they end up integrating that into the score. I really liked that. So uh, for me, I called the score a win.
1: I, yeah, I, I I didn't connect with it. I didn't think it was thriller enough. Yeah, I didn't think they they really capitalized enough on the you, you know it back to the film uh, to all about Eve and the thing I loved so much about the score there is that it absolutely was a part of the storytelling and this seemed so much a, a, apart from the storytelling uh, that that it, it I, I was distracted by it. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm, you know. <laughs> Had you done it, we would have words, but you didn't do it. Uh, let's, uh, how to do an award season.
0: This a is a fun one to talk about with the awards. Um, it ended up getting, uh, five Oscar nominations Um, For Best Costume Design, which it won, uh, Black and White Costume Design, Norma Koch won for that. Um, Best Sound, Joseph D. Kelly, who lost to John Cox for Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, Best Cinematography, Black and White, uh, lost to Jean Bourguin and Walter Waditz for The Longest Day. Best Supporting Actor, Victor Buono, uh, he lost to Ed Begley in Sweet Bird of Youth. And uh, the interesting one that's definitely worth chatting about is Betty Davis was nominated for Best Actress. She ended up losing to Anne Bancroft for The Miracle Worker. And there is a big story here. Betty Davis uh, was nominated, and this uh, she had won the Oscar twice. If she won again, it would have been a record for the number of wins for one actress. Um, it had not happened. Uh, no one had won three before. So it would have been quite the story. But... Because of the animosity that had been rising between Davis and Crawford. And the fact that Crawford did not get an Oscar nomination. Apparently what happened is Crawford supposedly... Campaigned against Betty Davis winning Best Actress, and she even told Anne Bancroft. Oh, actually, I guess she told all of the the women who were uh, nominated opposite uh, Davis that if they weren't able to accept their award, she would be happy to get up on stage for them and accept in their presence or in in their absence. I mean, lo and behold, Anne Bancroft was on uh, in on a play on Broadway, and she said she accepted. She said, "Sure, if I win, you can accept on my behalf." And she ends up winning and uh, Davis uh, apparently now this is this is rumor, but apparently uh, Davis was standing in the wings of the theater waiting to hear the names of the winner. And when it was announced that Bancroft had won, uh, Davis felt an icy hand on her shoulder as Crawford said, excuse me, I have an Oscar to accept. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and, uh, Davis went on to say later. In uh, years later, she said, I was positive I would get it. So was everybody in town. I almost dropped dead when I didn't win. I wanted to be the first actress to win three times, but now it's been done, so I may as well give up. And of course, the fact that Miss Crawford got permission to accept for any of the other nominees was hysterical. I was nominated, but she was receiving the acclaim. It would have meant a million more dollars to our film if I had won. Joan was thrilled I hadn't. <laughs>
1: it's the truth. You, there's, there's this this other, this last quote that I found that uh, on this point, which that was a great summary, but I love this image. Betty Davis says, Joan traveled around the world carrying the Bancroft Oscar with her. When she came back to New York, she threw a lavish party on the stage of Mother Courage, the play Anne Bancroft was in, and presented her with the Oscar. <laughs> you know, that is, that's class right there. Oh. Uh.
0: I just love it.
1: Just yeah. This is so when crazy. actresses really knew how to rub it in each other's faces back, <laughs> back then. They really did. They really, really trucked in that kind of uh, that kind of vile. Oh nice my, work, ladies, nice good work. stuff. Uh, this has been remade.
0: Yes, interesting. There was a, a 1991 TV remake starring uh, real life sisters Vanessa and Lynn Redgrave. I've never seen it. I didn't hear good things though. <laughs> You know, in in the spirit of the bitty, uh, psycho biddy subgenre of which uh, you know, there's a whole slew of them that this uh, this birthed. Um, hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, which Aldrich did a few years later um, with uh, Betty Davis. He actually had cast Joan Crawford as well. They were both going to do it again, but playing the opposite roles, where Davis was going to be the one feeling that Crawford was kind of uh, destroying her. Um, and I guess they were just having such issues on set at this point. I mean, after all this Oscar hullabaloo and everything, I can, I can imagine, but Crawford, um, she essentially ended up playing sick until they ended up recasting her with Olivia de Havilland and went on with
1: their (laughs) lives. How do, how about the box office? Well,
0: like I said, this is done independently. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Dane? J- Baby Dane, Baby Jane was shot in just twenty one days, which is amazing. It cost an estimated one million to make, which is about seven point eight million in today's dollars. And you know, I don't know how we picked it, Pete, but uh, this is four for four of October openings for Betty. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Opened on Halloween, nineteen sixty two, the same day as George Roy Hill's marriage comedy, Period of Adjustment, starring Jane Fonda. Um, the, like I said, this was an unexpected hit, recouping its original budget in just 11 days and bumping the longest day from the top of the box office chart for its opening weekend. This ended up grossing just over four million domestically and nearly five million everywhere else, giving it a total gross of nine million, or just under 72 million in today's dollars. That means it made nine times its budget and left it at an adjusted profit per finished minute of 479,398 dollars. Pretty impressive,
1: especially for the two leads getting profits from the back end. That's a, yeah. you know, think about that for a minute. I mean, seventy-two million dollars. Yeah, that's a, nice, that's a nice performance for by by today's standards. Oh, right, absolutely.
0: Either. Well, and especially you know when the budget, uh, this this grossed um, nine times what the budget was. I mean, that's fantastic. That really that's is what really. Uh, you want.
1: Yeah. Well, I you know I think it's time, Andy, for the fourth of our Betty Davis series. I say we rank it. And let's see see how it does. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. Sign into your account over there. And uh and this is you can go to your, your Betty Davis uh, uh fan page. <laughs> on Flickchart. <laughs> I'm sure you'll find it. And uh and and let's rank it together right here. What's up first?
0: All right. First up we have whatever happened to baby Jane or the Road Warrior, our new O Brother Block. That's a tough one. Uh, I'm going to say The Road Warrior.
1: Yeah, me too. wasn't that tough. I, I just
0: feel bad. <laughs> uh, it's been the block for all of these. and, and uh, Three of the four are now in our bottom half because of the, the Road Warrior block. But we've got to talk about this a lot is of why, This
1: is eat. what Flick Chart was meant to do. Cause pain.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yes, indeed. I agree with you there. Whatever happened to Baby Jane or the Deer Hunter? Oh, Andy. That's a big one. Oh, deer
1: hunter. Um, I uh, I'm right smack on the fence on this one. These these uh, you're leaning one way. Tell me you're leaning one way. I'm, I'm push leaning right to right baby Jane. I'm leaning to baby Jane. I got you got it. Take it. Take it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Whatever happened to Baby
0: Jane, or when Harry met Sally? Uh, I'm I'm whatever happened to Baby Jane? I'm when Harry met Sally. Heavily, yeah, it's such a great film. I don't disagree, and it's just what I'm going to watch more. I love that uh, the story of those two fantastic film.
1: Well, I'm also going to. It is also one I'm going to watch more. Honestly, I probably will watch the Deer Hunter more. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh well i i'm still whatever i'm still i'm when harry met sally i i don't know it's just a perfect example of a, a brilliant uh use of storytelling as you watch these two over the course of their lives uh falling in love i love it
1: and i would argue that uh whatever happened to baby jane is the perfect story of watching these two fallen <laughs> siblings fall into complete disarray over the course of their lives it is uh, it is an uncanny parallel to when harry met sally
0: that's funny, that is funny.
1: You can have it. Okay, <laughs> I, I made my guess. Go to the whatever. whatever.
0: No, no, no. All uh, right, whatever happened to Baby Jane or Driving Miss Daisy? I'm gonna go with Baby Jane.
1: That surprises me a little bit. I'll also it does go it, with Baby Jane? Yeah, it, it surprises me, but I'll go with Baby Jane.
0: All right, whatever happened to Baby Jane or Midnight Run? Haven't seen that pop up in quite a while.
1: Whatever happened to Baby Jane? I think.
0: Boy. I sure like me some Midnight Run, but weirdly, I think Baby Jane. I'm gonna pick.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, that that settles it, Pete. We're at 159 out of 275 on our flick chart. God, I think that that's a pretty good Road spot. Warrior. I, I know. I for, for considering we lost to the Road Warrior, I still think it ended up. It's a pretty good spot. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's okay despite the fact that um you know all of these films i probably would put in the top half but it it is what Wait. it is
1: so how do you how do you uh, how do you rectify your letterbox ranking your star ranking at a movie that's at 159 on flick chart
0: this is still a 4 star film for me i mean i i have a great time watching it um it's it's I, I'm not sure exactly why I drop a star off of it, but I... I, I, I don't
1: you know. know either. What is, What is the difference between her performance? I mean, her performance in this film is is largely more challenging, uh, certainly more breathtakingly strenuous as an actress than her role in All About Eve, and that movie ended up being a five-star.
0: I, I think it's just the story itself. I mean, as much as I enjoy the film... It's just kind of a really dark uh, psychological film, and it's it's just more difficult to watch. And so I think Mm -hmm. that ends up in my mind just kind of diminishing it. I guess a
1: little bit, maybe I don't know. All right, I'm
0: not sure. I'm not sure. I'm selling myself on it, but I just I walked. I when I left, I'm like, you know, I think it's probably a four star
1: okay I, I mean i'm I think I'm in that four star range too i I struggle with it because I really am I'm so keen on these performances of these women and I think that's just so strong and I don't want to be the guy that only likes the happy movies, but I fear that that's kind of where I in my reputation. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's all funny. about Eve really just nails a five star, but that's mostly because everybody's dressed up really pretty and <laughs> looks nice all the time. And <laughs> and uh, this, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not that guy. I really, I, I swear, I'm not. But but I'm I'm kind of a four star here. And I I feel like my I, you did you did able work. Andy on this series. You really did. I don't know that I'm totally sold on Betty Davis being the icon. I had mixed results with the first two films with the Little Foxes and Now Voyager and uh and great results with these last two films. So I feel like, you know, we're we're sort of what is that? We're we're batting 500. Yeah, I guess so. Is that that's is that what that means in sports ball? Sure. Uh and so <laughs> in sports I ball? I'm not uh, I <laughs> I, I feel like it's none of these like, you know, when when only half of them were really home runs for me, I, I feel like I'm not I'm not completely sold on it. We didn't really talk about how this this film has become such an icon for um, like a queer icon. Is that what you were yeah. calling it? Right, I, right. I don't understand that. I, I don't understand that. And it shows how far afield from those cultural elements that I am in watching these movies. I don't get it. Like, I've never been exposed to it in that light. So I don't understand uh, where she gets some of the, the sort of cultural credibility that she gets. Um, and while I think she's a she's a terrifically fine actress, I just don't I, I don't quite understand the icon.
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just, uh, I, what I love about Betty Davis is she is one of those performers who puts, uh you know, one hundred and ten percent of herself into every performance, and I think we've seen it in all of these different films. Here, she's been so different in every film, and she's always delivered a, a wholly unique character. And uh, I, I think, regardless of what you think of the films, I think as as far as a series goes, I think it's interesting to just see what Betty Davis can do on screen and how she brings it. And I think to that end, I think is a really interesting uh, swath of her career that we uh, that we. Experience. Here. so I mean, I had seen three of the four. I had never seen Little Foxes, but um, and you know, I had some issues with that film, but I still enjoyed it. And and I think a lot of it is just because I think that she's just such an
1: interesting person to watch. Yeah, I I I can see it. I I, I see what you mean there, and I also uh, I just echo how. Uh, Deeply gratified I am that we actually did this series because I I obviously needed more exposure to Betty Davis and if anything I learned out of this series I I should see more Betty Davis movies because you know I can maybe we're just chipping away at a wall yeah there you go and uh, I need to I need to break through it so I am I am cautiously optimistic <laughs> what a weird thing to say about an actress. <laughs>
0: What's funny about this particular film in this series is this made me realize what a hole I have in my uh, filmography of all the movies I've seen um, of of uh, Joan Crawford. I, I feel like, man, there's an actress I need to see more films of because I, I don't feel it's fair to, to have um, Faye Dunaway's performance of her. So locked in my head as who Joan Crawford is, I feel like I need to go watch more of her movies.
1: Man, that was exactly my thought, and and actually why I brought that up earlier—that my impression of Jane Crawford or Joan Crawford is—is is Faye Dunaway. That is so unfair. That's horrible to 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 do when she was just at the, she was one of the great actresses in thirties and forties. We need to we need to see more stuff. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, that's it. So we're locked on four stars on this one. Is that what yeah, you Yeah, I, I,
0: I think I'm good on four stars. I
1: could almost go up to four and a half, but I think I'm, I think I'm at four. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's leave it at four. And, uh, let me ask you, Andy, if this is, uh, if this is the end of our Betty Davis series, what comes next?
0: Oh, Pete, it's a big one. Oh man. This is a big one. Yeah. We are going to be tackling the Godfather trilogy. And, uh, yeah, it's a it's a interesting time of year for us to pick a series of such long films. Uh but yes, we've got a few uh, beefy ones to tackle and I'm very much looking forward to going through this uh this trilogy again. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm excited to explore all three of them and really get a sense of how they all work, regardless of uh, what people think of the number three.
1: I, I actually have never watched all three of them in any sort of marathon fashion. Oh, really? I've always watched them completely independently of one another. Oh, that's so funny. My my, my uh, wife why? and
0: I would always, uh, we would do, um, we would, before we had kids, like once a year or, or so, we would uh, watch the whole trilogy. We'd make Italian food, and we'd just sit there and watch the whole trilogy.
1: It was great. <laughs> That's Those awesome. days don't
0: happen anymore.
1: <laughs> no, I imagine they do not. I'm, I'm very excited to get into this. That's coming next week. So, uh, uh, and and we should say this show, as we are speaking, is uh, it, it's uh, going live right here on uh, American uh, Thanksgiving holiday. So, uh, if you are celebrating Thanksgiving anywhere uh, in the world, you are celebrating Thanksgiving. This this American holiday of Turkey, we wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and we are super thankful that that you know we're here doing the show and that you guys are all downloading and listening to it and and um, you know you're probably not actually listening on Thanksgiving because who are we kidding? You're probably eating. <laughs> but thanks anyway. Whenever you get to Thank it, happy you. Thanksgiving. There, there you go. That's it. I gotta go to bed.
0: Why? Because you're ugly? No, Pete. You weren't ugly. I made you that way.
1: Amazon giveth, handy. As Amazon always doeth. I've got one from uh, 2003. There aren't, I, we should say, there aren't a lot of one stars. People love it. So I'm, I'm going to 85% for, for stars. five stars. 85%. Yeah, people, I think that's fair to say people love it. Although many of those same people don't know if they're talking about Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> <laughs> that's <is> true. <laughs> okay. Uh, Tom Servo writes in. From July 31st, 2003, after watching the DVD of this film, I think this was trying to be scary, but it wasn't at all. I found that this movie is best viewed as a dark comedy. The film opens years after a calamitous car accident leaves Blanche in a wheelchair with no one to care for her except the increasingly insane and sadistic Jane and their servant, Norman.
0: (laughs) 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 Trying to punish...
1: Trying to punish Blanche for her years of success, Jane tortures the housebound woman, slowly trying to starve her to death, all while attempting to recapture the fame of her youth. This dark drama also stars Victor Buono as the hefty pianist who answers Jane's ad for an accompanist, hoping to milk some money off the demented old woman. I think it was trying to capitalize on the success of Psycho. Oh well. <laughs> Get some bud together and enjoy this kooky comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Oh, it's so, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> at least I feel like I better I, I better understand why <laughs> how the servant was Norman. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh oh so funny. Oh. well
0: I've got a one star by T Bake, speaking of buds, uh, who said, Ew, I think I wanna vomit. This movie might possibly be the worst ever film on the face of this world. I would advise everyone to save their money to buy something that you won't want to kill yourself over. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is about two crazed sisters, one of whom is crippled, Blanche. Her sister Jane still thinks she's a beautiful child actor that wants all of the attention. When Jane's sister gets all of the attention and tries to kill her, you see she just gets more and more crazy. As the movie progresses, you get more and more annoyed. One cannot even sleep during this movie just because of how irritated you get. (laughs) It's good that you're trying to take a nap here. Finally, at the end of the movie, we find Jane and Blanche, near death row, on a beach. Jane wants some ice cream, so she gets it and leaves her sister to die, starving and thirsty on the beach. Do yourself a favor. Listen to me when I
1: say this is the worst movie ever. <laughs> this is the worst movie, and it should apologize. <laughs> Oh, thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been, like, decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible.
0: What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore, either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel... Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextwheelcom slash audible.
1: It's the way to go.
0: All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season six, and you try to guess how many movies
1: from it were adaptations. No, hold on. Hold on. No, it's my turn. Ah, damn. First up, disease films.
0: Uh, okay. Uh, well, there's The Omega Man and The Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, and Blindness. One more. What more um oh children of men that's the one okay how about it's real life jack oh that's easy black hog down sea biscuit betty davis uh, uh the little foxes um whatever happened to baby jane
1: now voyager okay this one's easy the godfather trilogy <laughs> well the godfather oh, so good well we've covered lots of great movies that started out as books books like the danish girl certain women howl's moving castle or the black stallion
0: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it.